Well, friends, as we mentioned earlier when we were reciting the Apostles' Creed, that today's sermon series is week two of a sermon series called What We Believe Matters. And uh, you probably know by now what we believe matters because what we believe drives what we do. And then what we do drives how we live. And so it's really important for us, not only as individuals, but as the family of God, for all of us to try to be on the same page about the essential beliefs of the Christian faith, the essential beliefs of, of, of who we are as Christ followers and who we are as God's church. Last week, we talked about the, um, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord of all. Now, this week, we want to talk about the Bible. We want to talk about the very word of God. Now, I'm going to tell you from a very early age, I was handed a Bible as a child. I think in my family, I don't know, I think I came out of the womb with Scripture in my hand. I mean, my parents just weren't going to see it any other way. Uh, I got into the Bible right away, and uh, my parents gave me my first copy of the Bible uh, as early as I can remember. I still have that Bible on a nightstand uh, in our home today, and its pages have been life to me. It's been life to me for 50-some years, and I praise God for that. You know, one of the amazing things about our children's ministry and family life ministry is putting the Word of, God's into the hand, Word of God into the hands of our young people. And as soon as a child enters into that ministry, they get the Word of God. When they're confirmed, uh, they actually get a Bible. And, and, and friends, we have scriptural access everywhere in every ministry that we do. You'll never hear a sermon preached here without Scripture. And if you do, you need to knock on my door and say, Pastor John, where was the Scripture? Because we start and end with God's Word. God's Word is life to us. Its pages have been life to me, and it carries the absolute truth. When I was a freshman at The Ohio State University, I remember my philosophy class. I remember the very first day, the professor walked in. Now, at Ohio State, back then, I mean, I think it still is the case now, there's like hundreds of people in a lecture hall sometimes. He'd walk in. He didn't say a word to the class. He just walked over to the chalkboard. Back then, we used chalkboards. That's how old I am, right? He used a chalkboard. He wrote a big T, capital T on there. He put a circle around it, and then he crossed it out. And he said, there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Friends, with God's Word, we can know the truth. Who's excited about that? We have access to ultimate truth, God's truth, God's Word. You can give God a hand for that. I mean, that, that is exciting, right? For 2,000 years, the church's book is the Bible. It has been, it is, and it always will be. The church's book is the Bible, and that's why we hold the Bible in the highest regard as the living Word of God that we read and we study and we proclaim and we order our lives around. Friends, this text, this incredible text right here, and, and, and now we don't necessarily uh, uh, open up our Bibles. We can turn on our Bibles, right? on the YouVersion Bible app, other places. The text that we see here or, or in here, these texts tell an epic story of salvation. It tells an epic story of God's redemption plan for his creation. It talks about where we came from. It reminds us of why we're here and how we should live. Friends, it's not just uh, any old book. It's not just another good read. It's God who is fully revealed to, God's cre to his creation. And there's nothing that needs to be added, friends, there are no new revelations. It is absolutely complete, friends. And this is one of the exciting things about our Ephesians Bible study because all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is reminding the Christian church and believers that we have access to all the riches and the blessings and the power of God. And friends, I would dare say that three-quarters of the American church, and I would put Rolling Plains in there, three-quarters of the American church, we have no idea how much access to God that we have. 
that we're not living in the fullness of God, that we're not taking on the full measure of God's blessings and and richness because we're not in here enough or we're not receiving the power of the Holy Spirit fully in our lives. There is so much more that God has to offer each of us. And the thing is, it's not because he's withholding. It's because we're not leaning in, because we're not leaning in. All these texts, they tell an epic story, an epic story. It's not just a book about God, but it's a book from God. It's personal. It's personal. That's why the Bible tells us that the Word became flesh in the book of John. We just celebrated this back in December when Christ was born. The the Word became flesh. Not only is the Word in the written pages, but the Word is a living being. Jesus himself is the Word of God, both written down and also alive to show us how to live the godly life. See, our Creator's divine autobiography is the Bible. It's an autobiography of his loving and redemptive plan for you and me, recorded and inspired, uh, uh, recorded by men and women and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And what's amazing about that is that God involves humanity as eyewitnesses to his redemptive work, and then he takes their recorded history and adds the power of the Holy Spirit that divinely organizes all of these accounts that have been written down according to his goodness, grace, and love. And you say, well, how could somebody do that? Well, somebody didn't do that. God did that. God has organized this divinely inspired word for you and me recorded by human hands. And so for all of these reasons, we hold the Bible in the highest regard, in the highest authority. And that leads us to another truth about the Bible. The Bible is a misunderstood book. It's often a misunderstood book, and sometimes by Christ followers themselves. You see, the good book is also a tough book. It's a good book, and it's a hard book. It's a tough book. It's a wonderful book. It's a true life history, not of good people doing good things, but of sinful people pursued by a loving and holy God. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it starts off by saying, you were once dead in your transgressions. See, Paul would want to remind us with that. But then later on he says, but you came alive in Jesus Christ. Amen? He wants us to be reminded that God's Word and Jesus Christ exist in our life, not because we're inherently good people in, order, in, in, in need of a tune-up or a little bit of tweaking. No, he says, you were once dead in your transgressions. I liken that to walking on, a, on, on the beaches on a 95-degree day, and all of a sudden, you see a jellyfish washed up on shore. Anybody smelt that before? Can you smell uh, what's cooking here? You walk up on a dead jellyfish in 90-degree weather, and that thing is a globulous uh, mess of nastiness. Now, would you walk up to that dead jellyfish and hold it into your arms uh, next to your, your, yourself and speak life into it? Of course you wouldn't. But Paul and God's Word and God would have us be reminded that that is the vision of who we are before we know Jesus Christ. We are sinful. We are filthy rags And we are in desperate need of redemption. And God doesn't want to make us a better version of ourselves. He wants to totally transform our lives. He wants to totally transform our lives. You see, the Bible isn't about a bunch of good people. No, the Bible is full of sinful people pursued by a loving and holy God. We get it backwards all the time. We say, oh, I I, I can't find God anywhere. I'm chasing after God. I don't know where he is. I can't find him. Friends, that's the backwards way of looking at our Christian faith. You see, our Christian faith in the Bible is a narrative not about humanity chasing after God. That's a religion, right? The Bible is about a relationship. It's about a relationship of God pursuing his creation. 
Did you know that the Christian faith is founded on God's pursuit of his creation, not his creation's pursuit of him? God is pursuing you in a relationship, and that story unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament to New Testament, in this incredible book that God is giving us. You know, there are times where the Bible brings us comfort, and there's times where the Bible brings us discomfort. Am I talking to some of the right people here today? I mean, we ought not walk out on Sunday morning every single Sunday and just feel good. You know, walking on air. We, we ought to walk out saying, man, whoo, okay, I got, I got to get in there a little bit further. I got to dig into this word. I got to know more. Or man, there's just, yeah, that, that part of my life needs to be adjusted. The Bible is meant to poke and to prod and to, and to both resuscitate and irritate. And irritate and resuscitate. You see, though it was written 2,000 years ago, amazingly, it speaks so relevantly into every generation and every life today, yesterday, today, and into the future. It's a divine light in a dark and broken world as it displays our desperate need for a loving relationship and redemption from our Father God. Oh, it's not just any book, friends. Uh, According to John and Jesus himself in his own words recorded by John, he says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Again, the the word is alive. The word is a person. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, it's not just any book. It's a place to meet Jesus. The word is alive, friends. The word is alive. It's not just a written text. It's personal. And according to Jesus, the sad part about it is, is that we are not engaged enough in the word of God. He's saying, listen, you know it's the source of life, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's saying, you got to get in here more. you got to get in here more. How can we, as a Christ follower who claimed to know God, go a day without, even, without at least having one scripture that we've read through that day? And for some of you, that means getting out the YouVersion Bible app and just setting it to give you the scripture of the day or the upper room, or, or uh, the daily breads that we have as devotionals out in the lobby. But we ought to be in this thing every single day. Jesus says, you, you know that I'm the source of life, yet you refuse to come to me to have this new life. Friends, I've seen it time and time again over the years in sharing my faith and, and sharing the scriptures with people, opening up God's word with other people, leading Bible studies, preaching sermons, and in personal discipleship relationships. You see what happens when the light bulb comes on when God's word is spoken and, and, and people grab a hold of it and take it into their hearts. And you see Jesus and the Holy Spirit grab a hold of their life through what they're reading and it changes a person's, it changes the, the whole world for that person. I know I'm talking to some of the right people who've experienced that. How many, have had, how many of you have had the Bible just turn your whole world upside down in a good and powerful way? Raise your hand. Everybody in the whole house ought to have their hand up for that. It just totally transforms the heart. I've witnessed it. I've seen it, friends. That's because the Bible is a living word. It is alive, the Bible says. When you approach the word of God with an open heart to God, it offers you salvation. It offers you life. It offers the very power of the Holy Spirit who makes the text come alive in us. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. Here's Hebrews. The Bible says this, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Friends, if you let him, if you allow God, when you open the Bible, the Holy Spirit will perform heart surgery in you. Now, friends, you might think that that's a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, friends, heart surgery is not a warm and fuzzy experience. Heart surgery involves not only healing, but it involves some pain to get there. I've never been under the knife for heart surgery, but I know others who have. 
And it is a very brutal procedure in some ways. It, 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 it involves an incision being cut right to the heart, right? An incision. And in some cases, the rib cage needs to be broken open to be able to expose the heart so the doctor can get in there and do exactly what he or she needs to do to alleviate whatever problem that, 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 that has been discovered. And friends, this is exactly what God does. God's word is going to cut us right to the heart. And at times, it's going to expose the brokenness in our life in order to be able to get down to the heart of the matter. And that's what God's Word does, friends. God, oh, He wants to perform some heart surgery in you. He wants to go to the deepest places of your life, and He wants to go straight to the heart. He wants to transform our thinking. He wants to, us to adjust the way that we see the world according to His Word and the way that we see and view other people. He wants to convict us of sin. He wants to call us to repentance. Oh, He wants to just change our whole life. You see, He's going to move in you through His Word so that he can move you to something new. The scriptures offer a way of salvation. That's the way that John Wesley put it, one of the founding church fathers, uh, one, one of those that, that really started the whole Methodist renewal movement and the Methodist denomination, John Wesley, who read and wrote himself so many books, preached so many sermons, and yet he would claim to be a man of one book. Which book do you think that was? Out of all the thousands of books he read and the hundreds of books that he wrote, which book do you think that he would claim to be a man of one book? The Bible. As a matter of fact, I think it was even self-proclaimed that he called himself a Bible bigot, that, that, that he was biased towards this book above all else and everything else. And because of that, he would filter everything in his life through biblical truth. So friends, if what he thought or what he reasoned or what he experienced was contrary to Scripture, he didn't bow and adjust to his thinking. No, he would bow to the Word of God and he would adjust his thinking to the Bible. And so, friends, oftentimes we find ourselves caught up with our experiences, our thoughts, and our ability to reason. And when it's contradictory to God's Word, John Wesley would remind us, we don't change God's Word to meet our expectations. We change our thoughts, we change our reasoning, and we get a fresh perspective on what we're experiencing based on the Word of God that never changes. The Word of God that never changes. Friends, we need a faithful reading of the Bible, a faithful reading of the Bible, not always a literal word-for-word -word meaning. Sometimes it's going to be a literal word-for-word -word meaning, but the Bible is full of metaphors and poems and psalms and parables to convey meaning beyond the meaning that you see. Take, for example, John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus is walking in the garden with the disciples before he's betrayed, and he says this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let me ask you something. Does this mean that, 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 that God is saying, according to the Bible, that you're made of tree bark and the flesh of an apple? You got, you, you got grape seeds inside of you? Well, some of you do. You had some grapes last night. Okay, whatever. Right? Okay. Does this mean that you are Groot? No. He's not saying that you're literally a tree. He's using a metaphorical explanation to talk to you about the deeper meaning of the relationship that he wants to have with you. What he's trying to say to you is, is any of you that are gardeners, if you cut off a branch, that branch is dead. And sometimes you need to go out to a, a, a vine or a tree and lop off some of those dead branches so that it can flourish. But you know that that branch needs to remain in the vine, otherwise there is no life. And that's what he's saying. He's, like, he's saying being in a relationship with me is everything. It's the very source of life. And you need to remain connected to me. That's what he's describing to us in John chapter 15, verse 5. Friends, we need a faithful reading of the text that takes into account the context and the audience and the entirety of Scripture when reading Bible passages from Genesis to Revelation. And friends, this is kind of where it gets confusing in our current denomination in the United Methodist Church. 
one of the uh, one of the largest churches. Actually, it's the largest church in the United States of America, and uh, I believe it's in Kansas City. And Adam Hamilton is the pastor of that United Methodist Church. And in a, a book that he wrote several years ago, he talked about buckets of scripture. And he had three different buckets. And he said, in this bucket, we have to put the scriptures that are still relevant to today. In this bucket, we have to put the scriptures in there that we like, eh, we're not sure if that's relevant to today. And then over here in this bucket, we're going to throw out scriptures that we believe and deem are not relevant to today anymore. And he had these bucket methods. And one of the passages of scripture that he uses often is Exodus chapter 21. And that says, anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a result, direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. Now, what Adam would say, Adam Hamilton and other church leaders in that bet would say, hey, listen, this is no longer relative because, well, we know thousands of years later that slavery is wrong, so we just throw out verses like this. Therefore, also, then, it means that the way that the Bible is viewed on other social issues, those should be changing, and we can throw out some of those scriptures as well because they're no longer relevant. That's kind of the process that happens there. But friends, if you read scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you will see a faithful reading of the way that God in the Bible approaches the concept of slavery. You'll see in the Old Testament that God calls Pharaoh to let his people go, that slavery is not a good place for his people to be. And when Jesus comes and fulfills the Old Covenant with the New Covenant in the New Testament, Paul is there writing to confirm that slavery is to be condemned. It is for freedom, he says, after all, that Christ has come to set us free. And so Paul denounces the practice of slavery among other social and societal practices in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Bible there says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars. See that? For slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So friends, while passages like Exodus chapter 21 can be confusing, we don't throw out Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 to 21, no, we read them in the larger context of the larger story of God's word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That larger story being of just how dark the world is. That's why those passages exist in the Old Testament, to remind us of our desperate need for redemption because this world is such a messed up place. I don't know if you knew that or not. Did you, did you know that our world is a messed up place? And it wasn't just the case more than 2,000 years ago is still the case today. And so this Bible, this word, this living word exists, Genesis through Revelation, to tell an entire story of just how desperately we needed Jesus to come and deliver a new covenant in the New Testament. Now, what you want to notice in this scripture in 1 Timothy is you notice that God's sexual ethic that began in the Old Testament is actually strengthened here in the New Testament with Paul's writings. By the way, Paul's writings are inspired by the person and work of Jesus Christ and his own words that Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 from the creation narrative when he says, Jesus himself says, and a man will join together with a woman and the two will become one flesh. 
and in doing so, saying that any practice outside of this covenant of Christian marriage between one man and one woman, according to God's word, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, would be considered to be sexually immoral, according to God's word. And so, friends, we must faithfully read the Bible in the larger context, in the whole of Scripture. And if you do, you'll find that the Bible condemns slavery and maintains a consistently strong sexual ethic throughout that is never deviated from. Friends, the entirety of Scripture tells the story of God. In 2 Timothy, the Bible confirms that. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Does that say all scriptures but Exodus 20, 21 to 20? 20 to 21? It says all scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, maybe, maybe you've heard this term before, red-letter Christians. Does anybody know what that means, red-letter Christian? The red letters in the Bible are what? Those words that Jesus spoke. Friends, when you have a faithful reading and understanding of God's word, we are not red letter Christians. We are biblical Christians. We, we understand and hold on to the entire story and the narrative of God's redemptive plan as fulfilled by Jesus himself. Jesus brings about a new covenant to fulfill the old one. It doesn't mean we throw out the old covenant. Even Jesus didn't do that. He said, I've come to fulfill the old covenant, the Old Testament, with a new covenant, with a new testament, with a new Passover. We, we, we don't forget the, the, the old Jewish Seder meal. No, we have a new Passover now feast that we celebrate. It's called Holy Communion. It's all a part of God's story and God's redemptive plan. It's the whole of the Bible. Friends, it's easy to isolate passages and make them what we want to hear. And it's also easy to isolate passages and write those passages off for what we don't want to hear. Our reading must harmonize with the whole of Scripture. Every passage we need must read must harmonize with the whole of Scripture. Now, while all Scripture is important, clearly not all are going to carry equal weight. They're not all going to carry equal weight. Take the dietary laws and the grooming laws uh, and techniques in the Old Testament. Now, you compare those with the weight of Old Testament moral law, and those pale in comparison in the weightiness of them. It's also important to experience the Bible through the work of saints that have come before us, people like John Wesley, who've gone before us with decades of study, scholarly understanding, handed down traditionally for hundreds of years to us that gives us a richness and a consistency to God's Word. I want to talk about that consistency of God's Word moment. Friends, a, a theological term for the consistency of God's Word would be orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy seems like an ancient term, and a lot of us might be confused on what that means. Um, but but my, my, my life coach just really explained that to me one time. He said, he said orthodoxy is kind of like a, a ship in a boat. It just lands at the same dock every single time. No matter what journey it goes on and no matter where it is, it's always going to wind up and land in the same spot. Friends, that's God's word. It's never changing. And no matter what the journey of our life is, we can always go back to God's word and know it hasn't changed we're docking in the same place every single time. And friends, that's why we look at the traditional understandings of God's word for more than 2,000 years, the traditional understandings and consistency to interpreting and knowing God's word. That's because, friends, ever since the word was written, biblical authority has always been challenged. Biblical authority has always been challenged. 
That's why in most of Paul's letters, including 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, all of those writings, almost every time he talks about sound and unsound doctrine, sound and unsound teaching. And most of the time, almost always, the challenge to biblical authority comes from the enemy himself, comes from the devil who tries to use humanity to skew God's intentions in his word. It started in the garden with Adam and Eve who received a word from God to enjoy everything in the garden except for the one tree, the tree of knowledge, the tree of life. And God said, you can, have, you can eat from every tree out there. You just can't eat from this one tree. And so God spoke that word to Adam and Eve, and I want you to watch the enemy, the devil, twist it. So if you want to go into some overtime here with me, um, I promise we'll still make it to Linda Arena. We'll still get there. Um, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 3. Now this starts at the end of chapter 2, but we're just going to read in chapter 3. Well, I'm still in chapter 2. Let me get to chapter 3 here. Now the serpent, who was the serpent? Satan? Yeah. Now the serpent was more... Uh, let's see, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Satan is trying to, Satan is twisting the word of God to her but she speaks back the truth to him of what God did say. So here's Satan's uh, second, um, um, his, his second plan and purpose here. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that what, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So friends, here's Satan's strategy. He's gonna twist God's word to you, and if you don't buy that, then he's gonna lie to you about God's intentions. How does that play out? Well, friends, uh, we still find ourselves today in life and culture and society saying, did God really still say that? And then we follow that up with, well, God is withholding from us. There has to be a new understanding of God's word. There has to be more revelation out there. There's got to be more that God wants to reveal to us, and God is not fully revealed. And what that suggests is, is that we have a God who withholds his truth from us. Friends, God's word promises us that God is fully revealed. Read the book of Ephesians. All six chapters will tell you that God is fully revealed. As a matter of fact, the book of Ephesians is about all the riches and the blessings that we have access to in our life. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And so, friends, we've got to be careful to know that 2,000 years later, more than 2,000 years later, that Satan still has the same strategy. He still is saying to us, whispering to us, did God really say that? And if we don't buy that, then he's going to say, well, then God is withholding from you. There's a new way to do life. We've got to go back and check the scriptures to make sure we can make them say what it is we want them to say. But friends, remind, be reminded of this. Original sin began with twisting God's word. And the world and human nature will always press against Scripture as a result of that. And it can be tempting to water things down and to make things palatable for our culture as the generations go on. And rather than offering a clear and compelling biblical gospel message of sin and grace and repentance and life transformation, we find ourselves tempted to water down the Word and preach less on sin and our desperate need for saving in Jesus Christ. But when the Bible takes a diminished place in the church, people find that the church 
has nothing more to offer than the myriad of other social service organizations out there does to our culture and society. And in that case, the salt of God is losing its saltiness. The salt of God is losing its saltiness. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 say this, We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of sound teaching and blown every... Let me read that again. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the, wa- the, by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Friends, when the wind of the culture tries to blow us to and fro, and it will, God's word is firm footing for us. It is a strong foothold, a firm foundation. It's absolute truth that can be known. And not only is it on the pages of God's Word in the Scriptures, it is also a person in the person and work of Jesus Christ that gives us clarity, that closes our mind on certain issues and gives us, gives us a distinguished purpose in offering life, the life-transforming power of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. God's Word closes our mind on certain things. I, I'm going to share with you this. People might think in our culture and society today that this might be an insensitive statement, but I want you to know uh, that I spent 50 years in God's Word, and in those 50 years, my mind is closed to certain things, and they're not up for debate. They're just not up for debate. The virgin birth, Jesus says the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Friends, those things are not up to debate, and we ought to have closed-mindedness on the things that God settled more than 2,000 years ago. The Bible is the owner manual for a faithful walk with Jesus Christ that leads us to a powerful, transformational, and abundant life. It's our final authority in all things. And questioning the authority of God's Word is not a new thing. That's why Paul tells everybody in the New Testament, be careful of unsound doctrine and unsound teachers. Friends, it's been happening since the beginning of time. Did God really say Did God really say? Or don't you know that God's holding out on you? There really is a better way to live than what God is saying? Friends, for salt to regain its saltiness, God's church, and for God's church to remain vital in a broken world, we must recommit ourselves to be people of one book, to be people of one book, of more than 2,000 years of orthodox biblical teaching that every time we go to the Word of God, we know it's landing in the same place. And we don't reorient God's Word to help us land in a different place. No, we adjust our lives to land in the place that God's Word calls us to. Here's some action steps and we're done. Number one, get into a Bible study. Get into God's Word. Get into a Bible study. Come to the pastor's Bible study on Thursday evenings. We used to have Sunday school classes and life groups and ministry groups where we're getting into the Word of God. Number two, recommit yourself to doing what God's Word says. In the Bible, the book of James says, don't merely be hearers of God's word, but be doers of the very word of God. And number three, if your thinking contradicts the Bible, which one do you change? You change your thinking. You change your thinking. If your experiences don't line up with the Bible, then you have some priorities to change. If your, if your worldview doesn't line up with the Bible, then we have to seek a new worldview. If the actions and activities in our life are contrary to God's word, then God is telling us, I've got a better plan for you. It's the abundant life here on earth, and I've got eternity waiting for you in heaven. Don't you want some? And, and I'll, I'm running to him and saying, yes, I do. Change me, God. 
change me. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are just, um, we're humbled. We're humbled and we're so grateful, Lord God, that you've given us your word. You've given us your word to study. And in there, Lord, even in the book of Ephesians, you promise us, in chapter one of Ephesians, you promise us that the mystery has been revealed, the mystery of the gospel message that we are in need of Jesus Christ and that Jews and Gentiles alike are all welcome at the foot of the cross, all welcome in your church, and are all equally in desperate need of knowing you. Lord God, would you allow your word to pierce our hearts? Lord God, would you allow your word to bring comfort and discomfort? Lord God, would you do heart surgery in us that involves both a painful procedure, but a life-saving replenishment of our health? Lord God, would you do a complete makeover in us? Lord God, would you remind us that we're not inherently good people, just in need of a tune-up? But Lord God, we are wretched sinners, filthy rags, that are in desperate need of saving by the blood of the Lamb of your Son, Jesus Christ, that washes away all of our sins and leaves us as white as snow in your eyes. Lord God, we need you. Lord God, would you transform each and every heart in this church, transform each and every church in this nation and every church in this world. Lord God, may we return to your word in a very strong way so that we can share the truth of the gospel message in love and grace and mercy and humility with the rest of the world. Not that we're better than anybody else, but that we're just as in need of, of this desperate resuscitation as anybody else is, Lord God. Oh God, we need you. We need your word. Would you cut to the heart of the matter in each and every one of us through your word? And Lord God, would you help us as your church to live boldly and lovingly and graciously and truthfully and mercifully for your word? lived out into the hearts and minds of this faith community and out into everything we do and in every way we live. We pray all this in your name, the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said together, amen. Amen, friends.